The Mark Stein Club Q&A, live around the planet, begins in 30 seconds. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID, Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein Cruise, sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece, for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe, and we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Filling in for Rush Limbaugh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Stein. Don't worry, America, you need not be discombobulated by sinister foreign guest hosts much longer. The real deal, the man himself, the great rock of Gibraltar of American conservatism for the last quarter century, returns tomorrow for authentic, full-strength, all-American excellence in broadcasting. Uh, but uh, but for now, for today, America's Anchorman is away, and this is your undocumented Anchorman sitting in, Mark Stein, the last unamnestied immigrant in America. And that's how it went for me year in, year out, for a decade and a half. America's Anchorman is away, and this is your undocumented Anchorman. Two years ago, this very day, February 17th, 2021, as I was preparing to go on air behind the golden EIB microphone of America's most listened to radio station, as you know, uh, John Howard, the former prime minister of uh, Australia, uh, when I mentioned to him that Rush had uh, 30 million uh, listeners, uh, (laughs) John Howard said to me, Struth, Rush has more listeners than we have Australians, which happened to be true. And as I was preparing to go on air to talk with those listeners two years ago today, my friend uh, Craig Kitchen, uh, who'd who'd been with Rush for decades, telephoned to say that the indispensable man of American conservatism, Rush Limbaugh, had died a couple of hours earlier. We remember Rush particularly today on this. Clubland Q&A live around the planet. Uh, he, he, he went around the planet on the American Forces Network and uh, on his travels. He went to Afghanistan and Israel and other places. Uh, and he was known in places where they never heard the show because he became a kind of uh, shorthand for uh, right-wing demonization. You know, so for example, the reason... <laughs> The minute I returned to UK broadcasting, uh, despite having been on the BBC for many years, people say, oh, this is some uh, right-wing nutjob who sits in for Rush Limbaugh. So Rush 
Rush was known even in a debased and caricatured and perverted form, even to people who'd never heard a minute of the show. Um, and uh, so I'm happy to uh, hear what you have to say. I miss him. And I think the entire... I listen to... Certainly listen to AM radio less, and I'll explain that for a bit. Obviously, I'm on with my uh, chum, uh, Mr. Snurdly, once a week as a kind of remembrance of the old DIB family. And I catch uh, Howie Carr when I'm out and about tootling around uh, northern New England, which I haven't been doing much of since, since my heart attack. But the whole form seems to have... It didn't die with Rush, but it is certainly in a much diminished form. Um, before any, the, the, the one thing I have come uh, to learn in the last uh, couple of months is what an incredible feat Rush performed in that last year of his life, when he wanted to be on air for three hours a day, and there were just some mornings when his wretched body would not cooperate because of the cancer eating away at him day by day by day. And I I don't uh, have cancer, but I had uh, a couple of heart attacks. And I should say, you know, for example, right now I'm pretty wiped out by this last week. I'm going to try to go the full hour, but who knows? Uh, if you're a telly fan and you like me doing four shows a week, well, tough, because next week we'll have three for you. I'm suffering terribly from exhaustion and from the focus required uh, to do shows like this, whether in audio or video. Um, so I don't want to restart and then have to go away again. Um, as I mentioned, I think it was last week, it takes me three times as long in makeup as it formerly did. So I certainly understand more than I did at the time about the incredible effort Rush made for his vast family of 30 million listeners to be there every day, even as he was in terrible terrible pain and on days when he didn't have terrible terrible pain uh simply didn't have the energy let's uh get to your questions you know how this works any one of the eight billion people on this planet is uh, free to listen to this show and we hope at least uh six and a half billion of you will you only need to be a mark stein club member to ask me a question and we've had a lot of new members this week <laughs> a surprising number from the United Kingdom, oddly enough. I wonder why that would be. But I, I certainly hope our newbies will want to go ahead and throw me a curveball. Do they have curveballs in the United Kingdom? I don't know. Uh, but let us get to it. Hart Leonard says, Today, in remembrance of Rush, I must admit that I owe my allegiance to Stein Online, to Rush, after becoming fully aware of you by your undocumented alien guest host spots. Uh, I remember one show in particular where you correctly poo-pooed the mouth-watering expectations by conservatives of the Durham Report. <laughs> I can't do that anymore either. <laughs> the Durham Report. At that time, you were the only one casting doubts on the devoutly hoped for revelations and prosecutions uh, to result from uh, the Durham Report. Surprise and shazam. Turns out you were right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I dream that during uh, my stay in that French hospital that apparently John Durham is staying on now to try and 
to to try and come up with a uh, an indictment against Trump. Was that just a dream I had, or is it actually true? I'll have to check into that. But yeah, the Rube Wright that always thinks, oh, they've important John Durham now. He's a straight shooter. He's going to get the goods on what really happened. Don't don't be a chump for the hundred forty seventh time. But on this day, continues Hart Leonard, I would humbly recommend one particular remembrance of Rush. If one in this age of childish self-absorption happens to be searching for an example of a real man to emulate, a sexist, old-fashioned notion to be sure, a man of grace, strength, talent, and confidence, but tempered by humility, decency, and faith, then one would do well to listen to Rush's opening comments. Uh, on his show of 23rd December 2020, his final show that year. I believe this to be one of the greatest broadcast segments in all of radio history, and it remains a wonderful example of dignity and goodness for us all, says Hart. That was the show. It was always special to rush uh, the last show before Christmas. Uh, Not always... Because when the show first started, people sometimes say, well, why did he have that Mannheim steamroller bumper music all the time during December? Because there's a lot of people who didn't didn't care for it. Um, And the reason was Rush was not a great Christmas person. For whatever reason, uh, the season didn't have a hold on him. And it was discovering Mannheim steamroller for whatever reason, that warmed him up to Christmas and got him doing that thing where he played Christmas bumper music all through December, and he especially played Mannheim Steamroller. And um, and uh, I was, you know, I made a, a, a Christmas album uh, a few years back, and I'd play a little bit of it when I was guest hosting in December. Uh, but uh, when uh, Mike... Uh, who was the engineer on the show through all the years I did it, when Mike told me that that uh, certain tracks, not all, but certain tracks uh, from my Christmas album had been um, added to the list of Rush-approved Christmas music, I was uh, was very tickled because because the affection he had for... um, Mannheim steamroller was what had actually warmed him up to Christmas and on that last Christmas of his life he he was trying to teach his audience that the last year uh, in which he'd been able to do fewer shows than he would normally have done but he'd still been there when it counted he'd willed himself and he certainly willed himself to do that last Christmas show and after you've done it, you say to people, you've got advanced lung cancer in January, and then you're there in February, March, April, May. After a while, people think you, that, can, that can go on forever. And he was trying to tell us on that last show before Christmas that it would not go on forever. And it was just like any other Rush pre-Christmas show, ending with Mannheim Steamroller playing Silent Night. And Rush was telling us that if he he didn't have a chance to say goodbye in the new year, that this was what he wanted us to know. And he outlived that Christmas broadcast by uh, a month 
and a half. And you were right. Uh, it's very moving. I can't, I won't, people are welcome to listen to it. I can't listen to that uh, last part because of, I I can't listen to it without without crying because um, to go to go back to a dark year in my life in 2017, I've been thinking about this in the last in the last couple of weeks. Obviously, since I had my falling out with uh, that guy uh, Angelos, uh, what's he called? Angelos Flacidopoulos, Angelos Flopidopoulos. I can't remember his name at uh, GB News, and it obviously reminded me of what happened with Carrie Cats and CRTV. CRTV isn't around anymore. I don't know where the Carrie Cats is. Don't really care. But when you want to take out a guy, I understand this. So when when CRTV decided to take me out, the best way to do that is to take me out everywhere so that you don't have any forum to fight back on. And Rush, in those immediate days after uh, Katz did what he did to me, if you don't, I don't want to go into the whole story, but, you know, he sued me for a combined $35 million, lost every time, lost on multiple fronts, lost every time. Uh, so when he did that to me, the thing to do is you don't want Stein pushing back and going on about uh, what a meanie Carrie Katz is and all that. Um, I was due, I think it was uh, the, the following week, to guest host for Rush. And in those ensue intervening days, two of the biggest, pers pers most powerful personalities in American uh, conservative media were bombarding Rush and telling him to take me off the guest host roster. Uh, roster. They were, were tweeting him. They were emailing him. I'm sure they were telephoning him, although uh, those, uh, those records uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen. But they were certainly uh, texting him and emailing him. And Rush could, e Rush could very easily have gone along with them. They were far more, two of the biggest players in American conservative media, far more powerful than me. But he was one of the most decent uh, and generous uh, guys I have ever worked with, with a tremendous sense of integrity. So he just let me guest host his show as scheduled a week after all this rubbish started. And uh, as emerged in Discovery, uh, the duplicitous little bastards at CRTV were saying, well, this is an in-your-face move. And the, um, uh, and the two big-shot media personalities were certainly not happy about it. And he did, and I've had cause to revisit those memories, as you may appreciate, uh, given my departure from GB News. I'm in Nor That's the only reason I'm here today, is because Rush did that for me. God God bless him. I thank him so much uh, for that. And uh, as I cautioned uh, on one of these Q&As at some point, you know, when everyone's saying, uh, you know, Carrie Katz tore up uh, my contract, CRTV, uh, and I cautioned the way all the people were taking, all his other hosts were taking his side, like Michelle Malkin, uh, Stephen Crowder, Gavin McInnes. And I said, you know, when he says, uh, when he tears up my contract, he's not saying my contract is worthless. He's saying your contract is worthless to Michelle Malkin, Gavin McInnes and Stephen Crowder, as has all come to pass 
in the fullness of time. And that, too, is not unrelated uh, to what we're saying uh, at GB. He was a he was a very he was a profoundly decent man. uh, Rush. And that's and I'll tell you one other because I've been thinking a lot about this in the recent in recent days. The other thing I liked about him which I think I wound up saying on air at one point. I like the way he didn't do the sugar daddy model of American conservatism, where you find some rich guy like the awful cats, Carrie Cats, and you find uh, uh, and you get him to sink some money into some money losing proposition like CRTV. I like the way Rush on his own, no sugar daddy, just built his show with one station. 10 stations, 100 stations, eventually over 600. He didn't need a sugar daddy. He he built such a brand. He had his own private jet very early on. Because after the first time, <laughs> he he was... <laughs> Uh, I know, I know, uh, I know, I know a little a bit about this. I uh, mean, this goes back years. Rush uh, had a gig in San, I think it was San Francisco, and some Rush rich guy sent a private plane for him, and uh, Rush enjoyed the experience immensely, rather than flying United or Delta or whatever it was. And and so when he got back, um, he said to my dear friend, Rush's chief of staff, Kit Carson, he said, uh, yeah, I'd like to do more of that. Now, he didn't mean I'm going to get some sugar daddy to send the private plane for me next time. I'm going to get my own private plane, EIB-1, which he did. And that's the difference. I prefer the Rush Limbaugh model uh, to the CRTV model and all uh, the rest uh, and all the rest of it. Kelton says... Hello, Mark. I'd like to make a couple of comments about Rush. Not only do I miss the issues that he would address during his program or his humor, but I also miss his desire to make a difference. When he wrote his Rush Revere series of children's books, he was not writing the latest conservative manifesto that made the rounds on Fox News before being forgotten. He instead made an attempt to insert himself into the education of children and the culture. He wanted his presence to be felt instead of allowing those areas to be further seeded. Additionally, what Rush did with this series of books did not require a large amount of bravery, and certainly not the strength he needed when he was behind the microphone while he was ill. I wish we could see a little bit of that bravery and strength these days. We have lost so much in him, and I must admit that 12.06pm has become a rather lonely time of day. I hope you're able to stay well between your health and what is a particularly sad day, Mark. Yeah, uh, in in fairness, I think it was Catherine, uh, Rush's uh, wife, who came up with the idea for that series because she wanted a little project they can work on together. And the little project they, they could, because I think that's that's fair enough. Uh, and uh, it's uh, uh, I don't know whether it's the secret of every happy marriage, but it's uh, also it's it's certainly important when you're uh, with someone like uh, Rush. And he, she just wanted a corner of Rush's professional life that she could do with him and she came and she came up with the idea of doing children's books and their little project for them to do together eventually it became a prize winning and best selling series of children's books very good actually and and lots of uh, and lots of good stuff in there and i would hope i don't know how, how many were still to come 
at the time of Rush's death, but I, I would hope that uh, there will be one or two more of that Rush uh, Revere series still ahead. Jack Yates says, Big fan of Marx, but I especially like his keeping Rush's memory alive. I still remember the day, August 6th, 1993. I was waiting in our car as my wife was having a cashier's check issued for the closing on our first boat purchase and tuned the radio to 12.10 a.m., in Philadelphia, what, what's the WPHT, is that whatever, HPT, the Big Talker. In I should know, I used to be on it, courtesy of Rush. Uh, the Big Talker, and I heard this guy named Limbaugh saying things that I had always thought. I still miss him. Um, Larry Durham says, while out on our various adventures, a common question between my wife and and me is, I wonder what L. Rushbo would be saying about that. I'm certain it is that way for millions. Here's another thing. Uh, here's another point I'll make, because if you're wondering why you think that, um, I'll tell you why I think it is. Uh, and I've had cause to, I don't want to mention Toby Young <laughs> in the same context as Rush Limbaugh, but I will just for this one little thing. Rush's big thing and this is this is why people listened and they kept listening what's what's happened to talk radio since rush went away is that it's just become uh, f from from my point of view shallow and reactive okay aoc has said something stupid well is that even still news anymore uh but let's beat her up because we're on the other team the opposite team from aoc uh does that get Anybody, anywhere? Well, we saw where it got America in the non-red wave uh, or the red non-wave, however you want to put it, uh, from that Tuesday in November. I don't think it particularly gets anyone anywhere. Rush's thing, Rush's thing was always first principle. So, OK, AOC says something stupid, but it's not just stupid uh, because she's on the other team. Uh, if you're going to talk about the shallow and the trivial and the transient and the crap that won't matter, you know, I, I had a line I used to use on Rush that I said I was more interested in the stuff that would, I wasn't interested in the stuff that wouldn't be important in six days' time, never mind six months, but I was looking six years and six decades down the road. That was my way of doing it. Rush's thing is always a first principle. So he'd take the shallow, the stack of stuff. He would take the stack of stuff that uh, Kit and Mr. Snurdly and other people uh, came up with uh, these stories that they'd seen hither and yon and assembled them in a coherent order and just put it there. And he'd get to maybe three or four percent of the stories. But the point was the shallow, transient, passing drivel was of interest to him because it illustrated the first principles, first principles of liberty. I like first principles in most areas of life. I've been, you know, sued for so long that my lawyers understand that I always like arguments based on first. I don't want to be like Snoop Doggy Dog and get off on a technicality. 
So uh, my lawyers understand that I always like first principles. I don't even like statute. Or we can get them because uh, New York State passed the statute against us because they know I don't like statute law because I have a low opinion of legislatures. They they know they want me to find a common law tort uh, that that, uh, answers my needs. In other words, something that has endured uh, down the centuries rather than just stupid laws passed by moronic legislators. Um, And Rush's great skill was always connecting that, connecting the passing drivel to first principles. Now, I said I didn't really want to talk about Toby Young, but as you may know, if you're a spectator reader or you listen to his podcast with James Dellingpole over at Ricochet, he he thinks there's no sort of... uh, He's like... He thinks there's no real issue with me parting company from GB News because, in fact, the trick is to work with Ofcom, the British media regulator, and to um, make accommodations with them that will enable you uh, to stay. I don't look at it like that. I, I always go back to first principles. And as I think I said somewhere or other, uh, when the McLean's thing came up, when these uh, the Canadian Islamic Congress took me to three Canadian human rights commissions, triple jeopardy, a lot at stake. I would have been banned from writing anything on virtually anything that mattered if I'd lost those cases. But McLean's is like the Canadian Dentist Room magazine, so it's not interested in fighting anything ideological. Um, so we had our first conference call, whatever it was. There was me, uh, Ken White, the editor of McLean's. There was... Julian Porter, QC, uh, who's now Julian Porter, KC, because there has been a demise of the crown in Canada. Uh, But there was Julian, there was Ken, there was me, and then there was uh, all the people from Rogers, which was the group that owned McLean. Rogers uh, isn't just a publisher. It runs your emails. It owns television and radio. Ted Rogers was a media genius. And God bless him, he was there when I needed him. So, you know, so the big boss and uh, all these senior executive vice presidents of things I've never heard of, and Ken, Julian, and me are on the conference call. And one of these senior executive vice presidents goes, well, uh, what's the bottom line here? And there's this pause. And so just to fill the pause, I say, well, the bottom line is, uh, he's going, what's our end game here? What's our, what are we trying to accomplish in fighting this suit? Because if you don't know that, what's the point of fighting it? So there's an embarrassing pause. And eventually I say, well, uh, the end game is to get the law repealed and get the Canadian state out of the censorship business. First principles. I'd love, as, as, uh, you know, Rush uh, helped me understand through all the years. First princ- if the first principle tells you that the Canadian state shouldn't be in the censorship business, then if you're sued under a law that shouldn't exist, you get the law repealed. Toby Young, General Secretary of the Free Speech Union, doesn't want to push back against Ofcom, the British state censor. He wants to reach accommodations with Ofcom so that it can, uh, you, you know, that's great. Oh, the Free Speech Union, what's your ya- rallying cry then, Toby Young? I love free speech. Free speech regulated by government for all. That is our reg- rallying cry. I miss Rush and I miss guys 
who understood first principles. God bless that man. Uh, And that's why the shallow stuff, uh, the sports bro formats, the what's your favorite superhero, all the shallow crap that is out there uh, is not what Rush Rush could make jokes about the shallow crap when he was coming out of a break, uh, but he always had the big stuff underneath. Mike Lyon says, Mark, I grieve for not having the ability to hear the takes of both Rush and Christy Blatchford through these dark times. Uh, Blatch was my colleague at the National Post, terrific crime uh, reporter, terrific courtroom reporter. Two years seems a lifetime ago, another almost unrecognizable world. Rush's sense of humor and Christie's BS detector would have aided greatly in persisting through these times. That's true. That's true. Uh, George Pazin, whom I always Quebecify and announce as Georges Pazin, uh, just because I happened to like it. I didn't know at first, and then he wrote to me and said, no, I'm just George Pazin. It rhymes with raisin, I think he said at one point or another. But I, I like to Quebecify him and uh, introduce him as Georges Pazin. And Georges says, uh, uh, two questions, Mark. Actually, one is more of a request. Uh, can you share a simple anecdote of your experiences with Rush and all the EIB stuff we haven't heard before? I know. And then two, I know you've expressed many times recently your opinion of the superiority of the French healthcare system versus the UK's. But do you have a thought as to why? Why do the French seem to get it right in the ways the UK gets it wrong? Uh, well, just to answer that question first, I wouldn't be alive. I wouldn't be alive. Um, Jamie Jenkins, our statistician, we're going to talk about this on the Mark Stein show next week. He used to do the health numbers at the Office of National Statistics, and he emailed me uh, a graph showing the wait for ambulance times in England and Wales. And I think in England and Wales, in England, it's 11 minutes now. And in Wales, I think it's up to 11 and a half minutes. This, this, this is the average wait time. I was told by Audrey, I was 15 minutes from death. I could feel, I've, I've talked about this, you know, hugging the wall uh, as I try to crawl my way around from the mortuary entrance to the emergency department entrance, and I'm feeling myself fading, fading, fading. And I fell into her arms, and she said to me, uh, after I was stabilized, I was, I'd, I'd been 15 minutes from death. Well, if you're uh, 15 minutes from death, and you call for an ambulance, and the ambulance arrives 11 and a half minutes later, you're cutting it very fine. Uh, why is that? Uh, as I understand it, I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, per, they spend about the same per capita, the UK and France, but they're much better outcomes to the point where France has two and a half times as many hospital beds per capita as the UK does, because France generally spends that budget on things that are consequential to health. The uh, UK's NHS is very bureaucrat heavy, super bureaucrat heavy, bureaucracy everywhere. Uh, and I think that's the short answer to that. Yeah, I asked for an anecdote. Um, I, was just, I was just thinking about this the other day, actually. Rush loved cats. 
He loved cats. He loved his cats, of course. <laughs> and he had a cat called Ali, who was especially beloved. And when I, whatever it is now, five, six, seven years ago, when I came out with my cat album, uh, I only found out <laughs> this half, this afterwards. Um, my cat, Marvin, uh, who's still uh, with me and I love, Marvin the cat, <laughs> knowing that uh, there was a track on my cat album called The Alley Cat, and Rush had a beloved cat called Alley. So I discovered, you know, a week or two later that Marvin the cat had sent a complimentary CD of my cat album to Ali the cat at Rush's pad in uh, in 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 Palm Beach uh, so that Ali could listen to the Ali cat song and uh, about a about a uh, whatever it was a uh, week later uh, Ali the cat sent a very nice note back from Palm Beach thanking Marvin uh, for sending me uh, his uh, cat album and saying how much uh, Ali was enjoying the Mark Stein <laughs> cat album in Palm Beach. So I, I, I don't know whether that counts as a Rush anecdote or a Rush's cat anecdote, uh, but Rush's, Rush's cat uh, certainly uh, had the same verve and command of the English language. I assume uh, Ali just picked that up from padding around and, and sitting on Rush's lap. But I, I think about that, and it's a happy thought to me. And, uh, you know, I could use uh, more happy thoughts at, uh, at this time. Um, Let's uh, pause from. Uh, well, let's 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 pause and have a, a little music. Not uh, my cat album, not my kind of music, uh, but Rush's kind of music. I'm going to let Rush's widow Catherine set it up with a bit of help from one of Rush's 30 million listeners. Uh, Rush died on Wednesday morning, and astonishingly. This is from a show that Catherine and I did together just 48 hours later. First of all, Catherine, my wife and I would like to express our deepest condolences Thank for you. the loss of Rush. Thank you. We loved him. We loved him from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, my question is, how did, it, how did Elton John evolve as the uh, musical guest at your wedding? Well, that's a great question, Mark. Both Rush and I loved Elton John for, for many years. And ironically, he happened to be staying in the exact same hotel as we were in Hawaii. We often went out to Hawaii to visit my parents who live there. We would go most Christmases every year for many years. And the year before we got married, just prior, Elton John was staying in the same hotel as we were. In fact, I believe he was in the in the hotel suite in the floor above us, and we were right below. And Rush and I were on the deck, and we said to each other, how about we invite 
Elton John to perform at our wedding. That certainly won't be at all <laughs> newsworthy. Um, so that is exactly what we did. We we thought at first it was it was a bit funny and perhaps it wouldn't happen. But I wrote a letter to Elton John and and told him how much we loved and adored him and respected his his music and his career and asked if he might be available to headline at our wedding and one thing led to another and sure enough he accepted very graciously and he was there and he was absolutely wonderful rush and um sir elton john kept in touch as we did and they spoke outside of of the wedding and it was a wonderful friendship i would say there were actually quite a few similarities that might not come across on the surface that is very uh, interesting when you when you put it like that catherine because people think that elton is just uh, another conventional cookie cutter left-wing rocker but actually he's a much more uh, sophisticated person and he's very decent and true uh, to friends he, he doesn't abandon them absolutely Absolutely. Wonderful man. Do you have a favorite Elton John song? I know uh, the disc jockey side of Rush, he, he he must have played a ton of Elton in his disc jockey days. But did you have a particular favorite? We did. We had a lot of favorites that we were actually able to put into the wedding. But I will say that Rush's favorite song, and, and mine as well, is Your Song by uh, Sir Elton John. And in fact, a, a little bit of inside baseball, as Rush would say, um, I played that for Rush in his final uh, days. And he was able to listen to that song. And we remembered um, our wedding and Elton John in particular. It's a little bit funny This feeling inside I'm not one of those who can easily hide I don't have much money But boy, if I did I'd buy a big house where We both could live If I was a sculptor, but then again, no, or a man who makes potions in a traveling show, I know it's not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, and this one's for you. Tell everybody This is your song It may be quite simple But now that it's done I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind That I put down the words How wonderful life is While you're in the world The verses, well, they've got me quite cross But the sun's been quite kind 
while I wrote this song is for people like you that keep it turned on. So excuse me for getting, but these things I do. You see, I've forgotten if they're green or they're blue. Anyway, the thing is, what I really mean. Yours are the sweetest eyes I've ever seen, and you can tell everybody this is the song. It may be quite simple, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind what I put down in the words. How wonderful life is while you're in the world. I hope you don't mind. I hope you don't mind. That I put down in the world. How wonderful life is while you're in the world. Written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin, your song. Which was also Rush and Catherine Limbaugh's song. Mark Stein's Clubland Q and A live around the planet. It's twenty to nine Greenwich Mean Time, and undoubtedly some other time entirely wherever you are. But uh, we're talking about Rush, and we're doing a sort of. <laughs> I guess it's a bit. It's a bit like an open line Friday, where uh, Rush would let anybody raise any subject whatsoever. Except it hasn't quite worked out like that because the subject people want to talk about seems to be mainly Rush. Pete Procopio writes, Mark. I trust you've been resting the ventricles. <laughs> so, yeah, I love the word ventricle. Um, uh, although I don't like the word occluded before it. I just like it uh, ventricle that's non-occluded. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the first time you filled in for L. Rushbo. How much radio had you done? Did you have a strategy? When it was over, were you pleased with your performance? Did you feel more pressure filling in before or after you developed a friendship? The first time I heard Rush, I was in uh, 1988, I was riding uh, in my car with my dad, riding in the car with my dad. They died one month apart. And it pains me to say there is a small part of me that is grateful they don't have to see the state of things today. The first time I fell, filled in for Rush was uh, 2006, which is a long time ago now, summer of 2006. Uh, I'd done a lot of radio um, ever since uh, I was 14 years old, Sue Cook and I were talking about this in the uh, green room uh, before my show a few months ago because I first met Sue 
at Capital Radio when she was for, she went on to have a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous career on the BBC, Children in Need with Terry Wogan, all that kind of thing. I first met Sue when she used to do the Super Savers, reading out the bargain items available on Michael Aspel's show on Capital Radio in 1974 when I was 14 years old. And Sue was a couple of years older than that. So I've been in radio a long... I've done radio... I started in radio a long, long time ago, but I hadn't done any because I'd been living in the hills in New Hampshire for quite a while. Um, and what it came about like this, and I still have no idea. I'll tell you something. On the Mark Stein cruise, Mr. Snerdley's coming on the cruise, and maybe he'll explain why. But one day I walk into the office and my assistant uh, picks up the telephone, Tiffany, and she says, uh, she goes, uh-huh, mm, okay. And she puts her hand over the phone and goes, uh, it's uh, someone from the Rush Limbaugh show. They want to know whether you'd be willing to guest host the show, right? So I take the phone and this guy whose name James Golden means nothing to me, goes, uh, hello, I'm James Golden. You probably know me better as Mr. Snurdly, Bo Snurdly. And of course, uh, I do. But ever since Tiffany has said, uh, it's someone from the Rush Limbaugh show, they want you to guest host the show, I'm automatically assuming it's a prank. Because, you know, there's a, a lot of that. When uh, Donald Trump called up uh, my pal Conrad Black in Toronto to uh, pardon him for his conviction in the U.S. courts, uh, Conrad immediately assumed that it was someone from The Sun or The Daily Mirror or whatever in Fleet Street calling him up to prank him. <laughs> <laughs> and they just got some guy who could do a pretty good Trump impression. Likewise, you know, the uh, two morning zoo guys at that Quebec radio station, uh, one of whom did a pretty good Jean Chrétien impression, who calls up Buckingham Palace and uh, gets put through to the Queen and uh, says, oh, your majesty, it is your humble and unworthy Canadian prime minister here. And they get it. <laughs> it gets put live on air. The Queen. So they so I automatically assumed it was that kind of prank call. I was so he goes, uh, you probably know me better as uh, as Snurdly, and I'm and I'm like being very non-committal. Uh huh. That's all I'm doing. I'm going uh huh. Mm hmm. Uh, because I'm assuming it's a kind of prank call. And he said, uh, I'll send you all the dates uh, to in an email or whatever. So we had a sort of, he did most of the talking and I was very non-committal trying to figure out who actually was pranking me for this. And to this day, I'll never know why Bo Snurdly would uh, ask, I'd had no presence in the United States in 2006. I wrote for the National Post in uh, Canada, and I wrote for the Daily Telegraph in the United Kingdom, and I wrote for Hawke's Bay Today in New Zealand, and uh, the Chicago Sun-Times carried my column. I, didn't, I wasn't anyone at the Chicago Sun-Times worth speaking of. I have no idea 
why Snurdly would get some guy nobody knew. I I uh, had never been. I had never appeared on Fox News, and I think I'm correct in saying this. I had never appeared on any other radio show other in America other than Hugh Hewitt's. Uh, so I have no idea why you, you because every radio guy in America would jump at the chance to guest host for Rush, uh, you know, and and the distributor I mentioned uh, Craig Kitchen earlier he he headed Premier Radio Networks the biggest radio distributor in America. And they also owned many stations. And the idea was, which makes sense, that if you've got uh, rushes away, you use one of your other guys from one of your local affiliates to host it. And then it'll maybe help him get a national syndicated show. And I have no idea why they picked up uh, some obscure connect. I'm the only foreigner. Uh, and as I said, in 2006, I owe, I owe Rush so much. I can't, I can't, you know, I owe Rush so much and it has stayed with me all through the years. The last cruise we did before the COVID killed everything, you know, uh, a lot of those people were Rush listeners coming on the Stein cruise because they knew Rush wasn't going to be doing a cruise. So it's, it's as near as you can get uh, to being on a Rush cruise and certainly will be this time because uh, Mr. Snurdly. Uh, is going to be on. I'll never, I'll never know. I'll never really. And then I, <laughs> I, I hopped on a plane, and because uh, I was doing a tour of Australia and didn't think too much about this rush fill-in thing, because I was focused on Oz. Did this nationwide tour in Australia, and then John Howard, who I mentioned earlier, he wanted me to stay for some education summit. I think about teaching history as a grand national narrative. Now, there's a thought. And uh, I said, no, I've got to uh, go back and do the Rush Limbaugh show. Uh, and that's when he did his truth. Russia's more listeners than we have Australians. And it was, a, it was a sort of slightly inconvenient flight. I had to fly back. I think it was uh, via New Zealand. So I flew, I flew from Australia to New Zealand and then back to America, I think coming down in Los Angeles and then taking a flight to New York. And so it was a long, long, long flight. And I wrote what I thought would be enough material for the three-hour show. Uh, and uh, six minutes past midday rolled around, and I started doing my material, and I ran out of it halfway <laughs> through that first segment. I'm glad they asked me back. Marilyn Connell says, I'm a new member and very happy with your new show. It's not a new show. It's the Mark Stein shows we've been doing. People, lots of people on both sides of the Atlantic keep trying to destroy the Mark Stein show. But, uh, but oddly enough, it keeps rising from the grave. Uh, very happy with your new show. Also bought your book, The Undocumented Mark Stein. Again, that arises from my rush joke. Uh, we called the book The Undocumented Mark Stein because I always used to introduce myself, as you heard at the top of the show, as uh, Rush was America's anchorman and I was therefore America's undocumented anchorman. And Marilyn says, I just want to say thank you for the pithy comment on the flyleaf uh, that you wrote in my book. Um, sorry, I can't think of an intelligent question to ask, but when I do, I'll let you know. <laughs> 
That's honest for you. Thank you for that. Kara says, uh, thanks be to God that you're with us and getting stronger each day, especially to mark the second anniversary of Rush Limbaugh's death. Perhaps in your extraordinary way, you will mark this day with a special song halfway through the Q&A in honor of Rush. Well, we we did with a, a, a special song uh, for both Rush and Catherine that Elton John sang at their wedding. Besides missing Rush's insight on my radio, as you stated, uh, the gut punch you felt that morning two years ago also hit me and anyone else who listens to the radio and has a nostalgic heart. His talent was on loan from God, as is yours, and he found a way through all of the daily mud to calm the listeners through his unique words of wisdom. You have the similar effect when you share your extraordinary insights on music. The lyric, if you think that love isn't found on the radio, then tune right in. You may find The Love You Lost, written by Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer, makes me think of Rush. I take it that's from her hit on the radio. Is it, Cara? I'm not, uh, I'm not, uh, I'll have a think about that. Where it's from, maybe we'll we'll play it on something or other. Uh, makes me think of Rush because for many of us, Rush's voice was that of our late parents or grandparents who were both funny and brilliant. He brought their voices back to many of us. Thanks, uh, Mr. Stein. You're always remembered in our prayers. And Pinkover says, hello, Mark. I know you may not want to comment on it, but since you mentioned it in passing, what do you think of the Stephen Crowder <laughs> Daily Wire situation? Uh, I didn't really mention it in passing. I just mentioned that I'd singled out uh, at the time of my own troubles with that uh, uh, cockwombling Carrie uh, Katz and his uh, CRTV network, uh, that I'd, I'd actually singled out by name uh, Stephen Crowder, Michelle Malkin, and Gavin McInnes, and saying, you know, he's not telling you that my contract's worthless. He's telling you that your contracts are worthless too. And so it proved very quickly with Mrs. Malkin and Mr. McInnes. It took rather a l- rather longer with Stephen Crowder, but ultimately, pr- and by the way, <laughs> uh, ultimately proved so. Um, I, uh, I would miss Rush anyway, says Anne, but it... Um, makes me miss him more to see other conservative news commentators, GB News included, prove to be less than courageous when it comes to pressure on content moderation. Thank you for staying strong. Well, I think that's the... Rush could say anything. I don't know whether you can do that now. I don't know whether you can do what Rush did now, simply because Rush basically invented the medium he dominated. You know, the idea of syndicated talk did not really exist in the way it did. I've, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. He figured he just looked at the, the schedule on stations he was on. And he figured that, you know, if you're going to do a syndicated show, there's no point doing a syndicated morning show because the morning man is generally has to be local uh, because... Uh, he has to do all the weather and traffic. Uh, there's there's likewise no point doing the afternoon drive show because, again, that guy generally is local because he has to do the weather and traffic. So that leaves basically the 9 a.m. slot uh, Eastern time and the midday 
slot. And the 9 a.m. slot Eastern time is going to be Deadsville in the Pacific time zone because they'll all be running the local morning show. So the one to go for is the midday slot. Now, what he did there by going for that dead zone is he made it the zone that every program director built uh, the stations around. And as I said, the difference between he's not a sugar daddy guy. He earned every penny. No one, he, he never did this thing that everybody does now. Oh, I found some Vegas billionaire who's willing to dump a lot of money in my lap. Uh, and then the, you discover that the Vegas billionaire has a certain interests that he wants to advance during the show. I, I love Rush for the way he was just Rush and he did it all himself, Anne. And that's that's the lesson I take from him. KD wrote, I listened to Toby Young with James Dellingpole and my jaw was injured when it dropped to the floor in shock at his rather spirited defense of Ofcom. So strange for the head of the free speech union. I agree with Dellingpole. Maybe he is bucking for Melanie Dawes's position. Uh, that would be Dame Melanie, who is the... Uh, whatever her title is, the chief executive, basically, at Ofcom, a director of Ofcom, the British media censor. And as I always point out when I play that clip, we played it on the Mark Stein show a few days ago. There's a picture of her at Davos with Klaus Schwab and all the other sinister globalists this year. I wonder why the head of Ofcom gets an invitation to... to uh, Davos to the Spectre board meeting that Klaus Schwab holds in his hollowed out Swiss Alp every year, making plans for the rest of us. Whenever I play that clip, I always point out that's our pal Andrew Lawton, actually the producer of the Mark Stein show, who's doorstepping Melanie Dawes and asking her about their censorship powers. And oddly enough, none of the Fleet Street eunuchs actually go up and ask Melanie Dawes that. None of the GB News reporters go up and ask her that. None of the Sky News, BBC, Talk TV reporters, Channel 4 reporters, go up and ask Melanie Dawes about her censorship powers over the British media. Uh, Andrew Lawton is a guy from London. Not London, England. London, Ontario. And he's the only guy to stick a microphone under uh, Melanie Dawes's mouth and ask her the the relevant question. Uh, that's who Melanie Dawes is. Uh, KD continues, could there be a knighthood in it too if he is a good boy? Well, he's the son of a peer. His father was Michael Young, who was eventually gay, given a peerage. Michael Young invented the term, the word, meritocracy, and he didn't mean it in a good way. Uh, it's very interesting book. It was a sort of satirical dystopian fantasy uh, that Michael Young wrote and, and well worth a read. Uh, so, you know, look, well, look, I had to Toby got into trouble. He was <clears throat> deplatformed by PayPal. Uh, so PayPal is the principal internet money uh, uh, money transfer system. So if you're if you're if you're on the outs, we don't use PayPal because I have never liked them after something they did 
uh, to an employee of mine, nothing to do with Stein Online or anything, but I just thought they were garbage and don't want anything to do with them. So we don't use PayPal. But Toby did. And the Daily Skeptic and the Free Speech Union both were highly dependent. PayPal provided uh, the majority of their income, more than Visa and MasterCard and whatever did. So when PayPal dumped him, I was sympathetic and I had him on to argue his corner. Uh, It's not a great ratings winner having Toby Young uh, talking about his dispute with PayPal for 10 minutes, but we had him on because I thought it was important. Because, you know, that's how far internet censorship goes now. It's it's not just fact-checkers or the the platform providers. It's also the fact that, you know, as vdare.com have discovered, uh, eventually your merchant processor will reject you. Um, so it's it's that's how deep the the urge to stifle and shut up. And so Toby Young had become like the UK version of what happened to Peter Brimelow at vdare.com. So I had him on. And then he does this, oh, Mark, he should just have reached an accommodation. It was it was never a, a good faith negotiation. GB News, uh, Flopadopoulos uh, and GB News put a clause in there that they knew was illegal under English law. So you're already starting several stages back there because you, you're going to have to say, OK, I've now got to get my solicitor to spend however many billable hours pointing out to them that this clause is illegal under English law. Um, so it was never a good faith negotiation to begin with. But I keep th- But I don't know. Oh, Ofcom, they're terribly. I called up someone from Ofcom and they're terribly nice and we should all just work together. Because Ofcom, you know, if you're just prepared to accommodate Ofcom's regulation of your speech, you'll still be left with something that approximates to free speech, even if it is, in fact, the definition of free in that context is government approval approved speech. So it's the equivalent of I'd had him on to talk about his PayPal troubles, which I did. And I'd said, oh, but why couldn't you just reach your accommodation with PayPal and moderate uh, some of your uh, wilder non-PayPal approved uh, words? I mean, this is this is why free spe- in the in a land that was the crucible of liberty for centuries, free speech is dead because even the free speech champions, so-called, have been nobbled uh, and have gotten so used to censorship uh, that their first reaction is to. It's not like my pal Ted Rogers and the management of Rogers, the most mainstream Canadian entity there is who were fully on board with my plan to get the censorship law repealed, which we did. It was bloody hard work. And no thanks to the government of Canada, which was nominally conservative at the time, with the exception of, of less than a handful of cabinet ministers. But we accomplished that. We got the law repealed. Toby Young, the free speech champion, doesn't want the censorship law repealed. He thinks we should just all learn to work with them. Oh, my. Oh, my. Uh, (laughs) Oh, I see I've now got... (laughs) Toby Pilling says... Oh, that's the good Toby. Toby Pilling says, if Toby Young... I always like the name Toby. Actually, I quite like the name... uh, there was a Busby Berkeley Corrine, a young lady called Toby, 
I always liked her too. Uh, anyway, if Toby Young has let you down and the cause of free speech, when are you going to get James Dellingpole on as a guest? I, I haven't seen James for a while and I uh, would very much like to, to uh, sit down and chew this over with him. So maybe we will do that. Mark Lipniaki wrote, Did GB News make Toby Young an offer he could not refuse, hence the coat turning? I would seriously doubt that. Uh, GB News is broke and they're now <laughs> they've and they're telling people that they won't pay for cabs. They've put Mick Booker, the editorial director. I was just reading some emails from uh, Fox News and the Dominion lawsuit and Mead Cooper, who's the whatever she is, senior executive vice president in charge of Fox News primetime. And so, as you can imagine, I've had dealings with her over many years relating to my guest hosting of Tucker. And she doesn't have a terribly high regard. She likes me. We've talked about this before. She likes me doing trivia. She, um, and a trivia I don't want to do. Uh, and that's But that's fair enough. But I, I read these emails of hers. She is, that are in this court case, and uh, it confirms what I've always thought, that even if you don't get along with her, you appreciate that she actually is a... A, a kind of television genius to run Fox News primetime, Fox Business primetime, seven days a week. By contrast, the, the equivalent figure at GB News is a guy called Mick Booker, who is truly one of the most unimpressive people you could ever make an executive. And what amuses me, <laughs> uh, I think there's someone in our comment section who was talking about this, um, is that uh, he's, the, he's supposed to be the editorial director for the station. Uh, they've now banned f uh, anybody taking taxis or minicabs. So if, uh, as with my show, you'd have an elderly baroness on late at night, the elderly baroness has to take the night bus back home from the studio. And the guy they put in charge of this, of approving every single taxi fare, is Mick Booker, the equivalent of Mead Cooper, the, you know, the number two, the executive in charge of programming. Uh, isn't it? And I, <laughs> when a, a friend of mine told me about this, I said, oh, is this because it's like the, you know, when you hear Dennis Miller, it's because he comes in the Middle Ages, his family were Millers or, you know, Fred Shepherd, his family in medieval times were uh, Shepherds. So I said, when uh, Mick Booker has been put in charge of booking taxi cabs, uh, does that mean his family were minicab bookers in medieval times? Um, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's doing, I think that's what I could understand. You're making the same confusion the CIA made about Pierre Trudeau when they looked at what he was doing and they assumed he must be in the pay of the KGB. <laughs> and they didn't seem to realize that things that you might require being bribed to do, some people are willing to do for free. And that's the unfortunate thing about Toby Young. He's been immersed in that world for so long, he's forgotten first principles, and he just wants to reach his accommodation with uh, 
off Ofcom. Uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli, says. Quick question surrounding the Toby thing. How many of Toby's articles at the Daily Skeptic would be called into question by Ofcom? Certainly a rhetorical question for us observers, but it would be interesting to hear Toby's stammering reply. Cheers and take care of those stents. Uh, t- uh, that's uh, uh, a uh, listener and at uh, Niagara on the Lake, beautiful town. Niagara on the Lake often stay at the Prince of Wales Hotel. There, it has a fabulous view over the uh, town green, and uh, has very good. There's a, a shop that sells very good savoury pies. I think. Anyway, um, that's that's absolutely true. The question is, most almost everything published. By Toby at the Daily Skeptic, you cannot say on uh, GB News now. So why is that? And why does Toby want to preserve that? Uh, Sandra Robinson says, good evening, Mark. What is a realistic proposal to the WEE, the World Economic Forum's revealed shutdown of the Internet uh, to exist, communicate and associate? Uh, they might. The th- there's two choices before the people who dominate what happens on. The one thing is you can do what they did before the US election. You can just control the internet. Everyone thinks the internet... When you walk down to the newsstand of a morning and you were in London, you'd be confronted with a choice uh, between the Daily Telegraph and the Guardian. In Toronto, you'd have a choice between uh, the Toronto Star and the Toronto Sun. In uh, Manhattan, you'd have a choice between the New York Times and the New York Post. So you knew there were restricted choices, but there was a uh, right-of-center choice and a left-of-center choice in, in most major markets. The great thing about the internet is it gives the uh, it gives you the sense that there are unlimited choices. But in fact, as we saw in the run up to the 2020 US election as a pra- practical matter, they're all pushing the same line. If they can uh, if they can intensify that as they do in China, then the internet will be allowed to exist. Uh, but if uh, there's still like little beacons of uh, contrarianism out there on the internet, such as this show, then uh, the whole internet is eventually at some point you're going to wake up and discover it's not there anymore. George Pereira says, Mark, you mentioned that GB News stiffed a bunch of people who made Neil Farage, <laughs> I think you mean Nigel Farage, Covering for you possible when you returned from La Belle France. This was, yeah, the uh, my autocue, lovely autocue uh, operator, Layla, a, a nice uh, Persian lady who'd been booked to do my show on January the 9th. And then uh, Nigel did his uh, ratings flop of a Harry Meghan special in my slot. Um, you also, and, and, and they declined to pay Layla, those buggers, that cheapskate, you know, Chisler at GB News, Flopadopoulos. Uh, I should use his real name because it ought to be better known. Angelus Vangopoulos. And he said, you also mentioned that you covered all their expenses. Two heart attacks, no income except cat album residuals, and you paid out of pocket, including Nigel Farage's expenses. Let's put the limelight on Nigel for the moment. Nigel looked away and left you to make things right alone. Nigel didn't offer to help. Please tell me I have my facts wrong. I thought Nigel was a better man than this. Well, I have no idea how much income Nigel makes, 
but he does do those terrible things on Cameo where, you know, if you give him 50 quid or whatever, he'll wish your granny a happy birthday, uh, which which I've never done. Uh, so I don't know how much money Nigel has, uh, but I I do think this idea of stiffing little people, I, yeah, I, I don't think I should have had to pay Layla. That was a GB News expense. I don't think I should have had to pay Emma, my wonderful uh, London makeup lady, for uh, making up Patrick Christie's when he guest hosted. But that cheap chiseler, Angelus Frangopoulos, I take it when he goes to his Dubai hedge funders, uh, they say, well, why are you paying for makeup and autocue anyway? They can do without that. That can go like with the taxis. Nobody should be getting that kind of stuff. But I've become very familiar with it. It's another thing about the sugar daddy model. When uh, when uh, Carrie Katz breached my contract uh, six years ago, he declined to pay the cleaner. He rejected the cleaner. He was suing me for $35 million dollars. But he wouldn't pay the cleaner's bill of whatever it was, $107. So why not just add it to the tab and sue me for $35 million and $107? Because these guys, in the end, uh, they're weak, hollow men. And weaklings always like find it easier to kick around the little person. So a weakling like Angelus Frangopoulos always finds it, he for start he hires weaklings, but he also finds it uh, easier to kick around weaklings like a nice makeup lady and a nice autocue operator. I I, uh, I I think Emma and Layla are great, and I would hire them anywhere around the planet in a moment. And the idea of and just because this guy wants to kill me and drive me to a third heart attack. The idea that he is to stiff them to truly, truly, truly contemptible. I can't I can't really express politely uh, how I feel about that. Uh, a, a bit more music to close. Um, but first, ahead of that, uh, a final word on Rush and literally a final word from Rush in whose debt I shall ever be. Here is something I said on the Mark Stein show a few days after his death. Rush never wanted to do a final show, never wanted to retire. Even as his cancer advanced, all he wanted was to be here for tomorrow's show, or if not the day after tomorrow's, or next week's, even as his wretched broken body refused to cooperate. And so in his last months, he would often have a guest host standing by in the studio, ready to take over in case his great voice faltered 40 minutes or an hour and a half into the three-hour show. And it fell to me to be on standby for the last two shows of Rush's life. I was happy to do it. I would have gone on doing it for as long as he wanted. And if you're worried about having to take over at a minute's notice, you listen more intently and you get to know the telltale signs. And at six minutes past midday Eastern time on that last day, I had the hint of weakness in his vocal timber. And then, as always, he somehow willed his frail and shrunken form to rouse itself and power through for the next three hours so that nobody listening, none of the listening millions, noticed a thing. 
No one other than me and Catherine and a couple of others would have heard anything other than Rush doing an effortless broadcast and having the time of his life. And at the very end of the show, he chose to thank me for standing by for three hours, and so I feel slightly embarrassed that a glorious third of a century run came to an end not with any of Rush's big thoughts or unique insights of which there had been so many over the decades, why Rush makes the big bucks, uh, as another fallen comrade, Kathy Shadle, always liked to put it. Uh, instead, for his sign-off of the last show, there were no grand thoughts, and instead his final words on air were, Thank you again, Mr. Stein. We'll be back soon. The second part was not to be, and the first part was not necessary. But many people in the last week have pointed out to me those last words of Rush, including some commenters here. It was not by design, it was the roll of the dice, and I feel a little sheepish about it. But today we shall take our leave as Rush took his leave. Mark Stein, thank you again, Mr. Stein, for standing by today. We'll be back soon. No. Thank you, Rush, for everything. Clubland Q&A, 
is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.